I greet you this morning in the name of Jesus. It's good to be here with you again and uh, looking forward to our time of sharing together. Some years ago when our family lived in Romania, I went to church one Sunday and a uh, boy from the orphanage there proudly showed me a new Bible that someone had given to him. And I noticed that it was an Orthodox Bible, which was slightly different than the Romanian translation that we typically used here that we were familiar with, that we were familiar with. And so I just uh, mentioned that to him and he wondered what the difference is. So I pointed out a couple places where, where some of the uh, references did not line up with the references in the Bible that we typically used. And he looked at me with eyes filled with concern and he said, but is this the Bible? And I replied, well, it's their Bible. And he wasn't satisfied with that. He said, but is it the Bible? Well, Yosef was not the first person to ask that question when presented with a different version. And perhaps you have asked that question yourself. My assignment for these uh, circuit series messages is to look at Bible translations. Now, this is a pertinent subject, and it's something that is of interest to me, but at the same time, I approach this with a little bit of trepidation for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, some of you may not find it to be the most inspirational subject for a Sunday morning message. It's a little different than the topics that we would uh, typically cover. In a way, I almost feel like I'm teaching a class more than preaching a sermon, talking about the Bible but not necessarily um, so much from the Bible. Typically, when I prepare a sermon, I do not rely heavily on commentaries, but for this message, I did use quite a bit of resources, which I uh, relied on quite, quite heavily. So parts of this might get a little bit tedious, but try to stick with me, and I think we will all find it helpful as we consider some of the different translations that are available for us today. The second reason why I approach this with a little bit of trepidation is because I know it's a hot-button subject. Uh, most of you probably are coming into this with, already with some opinions. And uh, I don't fault you for having opinions. Uh, some people have some pretty strong opinions. I'll give you a few examples. Um, I remember years ago, uh, when I was at Bible school, there was one uh, young man there at Bible school that uh, liked to make this statement. He said, if King James would be alive today, he would read the NIV. And then there were others who said, oh, the NIV, that stands for nearly infallible version, indicating that the Bible is infallible, but the NIV is, is nearly infallible. So they have their opinions. Someone else says, hundreds of years ago, people gave their lives so that they could have a Bible in a language that the common person could understand. He says, yet today there are people who insist we use Bibles that people don't understand. Okay, so that was his opinion. Uh, again, when I was living in Romania, we had a, a visitor from America who was kind of interested in the culture and, and the Romanian Bible, and he uh, asked some questions about the Romanian Bible. And uh, one of the questions he asked is, was the Romanian Bible translated from the King James? And he was implying that if it was translated from anything other than the King James, it was not an accurate Bible. I think he was quite shocked when I responded to his question, well, I certainly hope not. And then I explained to him that the King James itself is a translation from the original languages, and if you translate from a translation, from a translation, from a translation, the farther you go, the farther from the original you get. Well, I think that made some sense to him. Uh, for a number of years, I was involved in, uh, with Lantern Books. We put uh, book displays in stores, and there was one particular man that I talked to that uh, we sold some books to. He was very much a King James-only person, to the point where it wasn't a matter of not putting other Bibles in the book rack, but if any book quoted a verse from any translation other than the King James, that book was not allowed in his store. 
So he was pretty strong. So I say people, people are, are opinionated about this. And some people have some pretty strong opinions. So what opinion is correct? Where do we go with all of this? Where do we start? Um, somewhat little or nothing to do with the King James. Others will not accept anything other. And some people simply don't know. So what is right? Who is right? Is it a matter of preference or is there more involved? I was pretty determined when I started with this subject to do so as objectively as I could, to try to look at it from a, an objective perspective and impartial, but that was challenging because I found that most sources that I read started out with a conclusion and then simply tried to defend their conclusion. So they had their conclusion before they did their research. Uh, their minds were made up. One objective source that was very good, um, published by CLP a number of years ago, the title is The Story Behind Diversions, written by Rodney Yoder. Uh, very good, I, I felt uh, probably one of the more objective sources that I found. I have a lot of material here, and I'll try to move through it as quickly as I can. I won't be able to cover everything just simply because of the vastness of the subject. But I'd like to start, first of all, with just simply a few verses. We need to start with an appreciation for God's word. And I'll just give several references. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And it's clear from this verse, from this reference, that the early Christians viewed the words of the Bible as words that God himself spoke. We need to keep that in mind and give the Bible a very high, um, high level of authority. Another verse in the same chapter that was read from this morning, uh, John read in devotions a little bit later in the chapter. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So one way that God did this was by giving words to holy men who then spoke or wrote them down. So this is the words of God. And then another verse, John 10, 35. This is a quote from Jesus himself when he says, the scripture cannot be broken. What God says in his word will stand. God will preserve his word. That was the words of Jesus himself. I did a little bit of study on the transmission of God's word, but I think for the sake of time, we will move through that. I'd like to look at a difference of Bible texts. Now, just a little bit of background. For 1,500 years, 1500 years the Bible was transmitted only through handwritten manuscripts passed on for 1,500 years, and it's only been about the last 500 years that we had a printed version available. Now, those handwritten manuscripts that we have, it would be nice if we would still have some of those handwritten manuscripts that were written by Moses or Ezra or Paul or John or Isaiah, but we don't. God did not choose to preserve those. So the most original thing that we have is handwritten copies of handwritten copies of handwritten copies. So there is a human element involved with this. And obviously, these copies are not all identical. So as we look at the, the New Testament, the New Testament would have Greek manuscripts originally written in Greek for the most part. There are 5,000 manuscripts available today, handwritten manuscripts of portions of the New Testament that are still in existence. Of these 5,000, no two are identical. Now, that may disappoint you, and it may make you feel like this is kind of uh, going down a dead-end street. Many of those differences are minor, you know, uh, misplaced punctuation or a misspelled word or something. Some of the differences are more significant. 
Uh, most of you are aware, if you compare translations, some translations have verses that are not found in other translations. And that goes back depending on which manuscript they use. Some manuscripts have portions that are not there. Other manuscripts, the portions are there. I remember hearing a, a minister one time, a Beachy minister, speaking on the translations, and he very boldly and vehemently declared, the Bible says that if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. He went on to say the translations uh, of some versions, the translators have taken away part of God's word, and God will remove their names from the book of life. And the sentiment he expressed was that if you have any Bible that has some of those verses missing, the best thing you could do is burn that book. Was he right? Should we feel his alarm? Well, the same verse, the same passage he quoted says that if any man shall add on to these things, God will add on to him the plagues written in this book. So who's to say if one version subtracted it or if another version added it? These are some of the questions that we face as we look at that. Now, if the King James Version would be translated directly from the words of Paul, we could use it as a standard. But it wasn't, and we can't. We've got to look beyond that, farther than that. Now, there's something I'd like you to try to follow my thought here. Remember I said there's, there's thousands of manuscripts have survived, no two of which are identical, but as scholars compare them, the differences in these manuscripts are found at different places. So let's just imagine we had 10 copies of a lengthy article, and none of these copies would be identical. Let's say there's, there's one difference in each copy. But in one copy, there's a difference in one sentence. And in the other nine copies, that sentence is identical. In another copy, there's a sentence or a difference somewhere in a different paragraph. But in the other nine copies, that paragraph is identical. You, you follow what I'm saying here. So if you have these 10 copies, there's one difference in each copy at one point, but the differences are all at different places. So if you would compare those 10 copies, you could come up with one version that nine copies agree with in every situation. So that's what scholars do and come up with a, a fairly um, reliable, I believe, source. There are a number of texts that people use to translate the Bible. Now when I refer to a text, what I'm referring to, so there's all these Greek manuscripts, and people have taken these manuscripts and, and compiled what they use, or what they feel is a text that they use to translate the Bible from. The first one of these is known as the Textus Receptus, which is a pretty lofty name. It simply means the received text, received texts. And what this, uh, the, the implication is that, that this is the text that was received from God. Uh, pretty, pretty lofty expectations. This was a printed Greek text compiled primarily in the 1500s. A lot of the work was by a man named Erasmus. And he collected some Greek manuscripts, compared them, compiled them into one, and had it printed. And that is known as the Textus Receptus. This is the text from which the King James Version was translated. Now, this text does have some weaknesses. It was compiled rather hastily. Erasmus was under some pressure there, and he, he pulled this together rather quickly, although it was edited and revised over years, so it, it did evolve some. Another weakness is that it was based on a relatively small number of manuscripts. He did not compare a large number of manuscripts. And a third weakness of this text is that portions of it came from the Vulgate, which is the Latin Bible used by the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church translated the Bible from Greek into Latin, 
And then Erasmus used this Latin version and translated it back into Greek. So you see this couple-step process in there, and every time you add another step, you're prone to a little more um, possibility for error. The Textus Receptus has stood as a standard text for nearly 300 years. Well, then there's another text, and like I say, I'm kind of summarizing and categorizing here, another text known as the Nessel Allen text, and this was developed over a period of years from the late 1800s through the mid-1900s. And this text is based largely on older manuscripts than what the Textus Receptus was based on. So after the Textus Receptus text was compiled, there were some manuscripts found which were written earlier, in an earlier period, so the texts were older. And some of those older manuscripts did not have a few of the verses that the more recent ones did. Most modern translations, NIV, ESV, and a lot of others, are based on this text. And that is why a lot of those Bibles will have some of those verses uh, not included, because they say, well, we used the older text, and they say those are more reliable. Well, then there's a third text called the majority text, and this is the most recently compiled. And this text, the advantage of it is, is that it is based on the widest number of manuscripts, based on more manuscripts than either of the previous texts that were used here. It is based on the idea that the most original thoughts will be carried through on the majority of the text. And as they compare the majority of these, they feel it gives them a wider basis. Now, it's very interesting that the majority text is very similar to the received text. Those two would be the, the most similar. So while the received text was based on a, a, a small number of manuscripts, the majority text is based on a wide number, and it does compare quite closely with the received text. Many conservative scholars of today would consider the majority text to be the most reliable. Let's move on. I'd like to take a look at translation styles and ask you the question, is translation an art or is it a science? Now, some of you know more than one language. And if we would ask you to translate or interpret a certain sentence, you may or may not do it using the exact same words. And I ask you the question, is translation a science or an, an art? And what do I mean by that? Science is something that's objective. It's precise. It's exact. It's mathematical. It's right or it's wrong. For example, if you would ask a scientist to describe water, how would he describe it? Well, water is two atoms of hydrogen combined with one atom of oxygen. You combine those and you have water. It's very precise. Not one atom of hydrogen, not three, two, with one atom of water. So it's very precise. You change it, it's wrong. That's a science. Art, on the other hand, is more subjective. Not one precise answer. It's a little more ambiguous, a lot of possibilities. For example, suppose you asked an artist or a photographer to depict water, or more precisely, to depict someone enjoying water. Now, if you picture someone enjoying water, what comes to your mind? What picture comes to your mind? Well, someone might picture something like this. Someone surfing a big wave. He is enjoying water. Someone else might give a picture of someone kayaking, shooting a rapids. I'm not sure if I'd be in that position that I would be enjoying the water, but some people do. Someone else might picture a boy sitting on the dock fishing. They're all enjoying water. So which is correct? They're all very different. You see, that's an art. There's many different ways to depict the same thing. 
And you might say, well, all of them are correct. Really? Did you consider that maybe none of them are correct? Perhaps the person who asked the artist to depict a boy enjoying water, maybe he works for a water conditioning company, and that's really what he wanted, a boy enjoying water. You see, they give very different connotations, very different ideas. So I come back to that question. Is translation a science, or is it an art? Well, I think the answer to that is, obviously, it has elements of both. But you will find that translators, in general, lean one way or the other. They lean towards the, the precise or towards the general. Like I said, no two people translate something identically. It's a combination. Now, this brings us to styles of Bible translations. There are two approaches that are used, the scientific approach and the artistic approach. And probably all translations use both to a degree, but like I said, it leans heavily on one or the other. The one way is known as formal equivalence. This is also known as a word-for-word -word translation, where uh, uh, those who translate will translate the words from one language to another. And they have the, um, the premise that the most precise way of reproducing the meaning is to translate word for word and to maintain sentence structure as much as possible. So this considers translation to be more of a science. The other style, dynamic equivalence, is considered a thought-for-thought -thought translation. So formal equivalence tries to tell you what it says. Dynamic equivalence tries to tell you what it means rather than what it says. Dynamic equivalence depends much more on the opinions of the translators. I think this is what it means, so I'm going to word it this way. So obviously their perspectives will seep in. Dynamic equivalence, on the other hand, makes the text much easier to read. They, they present it in a readable way. So while it may sacrifice accuracy, it may improve readability. And that appeals to a lot of people. It's easier to read. I can understand it. It's more readable. And it may also lose some of the majesty in, in doing that. So again, I ask, which is better? When I was in uh, Romania, in the process of learning the Romanian language, there was a phase in that process in which I understood the language enough to, to understand what people were saying, but not good enough to preach in the language. So I used an interpreter, but I understood what he was saying, which sometimes was frustrating for both me and for him. Because sometimes I would say a statement in a certain way because I wanted a certain thought to come across, and he did not interpret it that way. So I repeated it trying to get my thought across, so you know, it, could be, it could be frustrating for him. I chose the words that I did for a reason. And if he presented it a different way, it's like, well, that's, that's not really what I was saying. Sometimes I wonder if God feels that way about certain Bible translations, but that's not what I said. That's really not what I was saying. My thought's not coming across. I believe our God is a precise God, and I believe that when he inspired the Bible, he chose the words he did for a reason. So where's the balance in all of this? And I'll just uh, make some more comments here on um, this aspect of dynamic equivalence. If you use it, how far do you go and where do you stop? How far do you go? Dynamic equivalence is really a step towards a paraphrase. Paraphrasing is not translating the Bible. It's simply putting it into your own words. And dynamic equivalence is, is headed into that direction. And uh, there have been paraphrases, people just putting the Bible in their own words, 
that have been made to appeal to a certain group of people. And some, some pretty many liberties were taken in that. I'll give you one example. There's a, a Bible, or the, the New Testament at least, was completed. And the name of it was the Cotton Patch Bible. This was written about uh, 1970 by a man named Clarence Jordan. And he wrote this Bible particularly for black people in the South. And he wanted them to have a Bible that they could identify with, that they could relate to, that they could understand. So he used terms and places that they were familiar with. He took a lot of liberty. His New Testament does not talk about Jews and Greeks. It talks about whites and blacks. Okay, so wherever you read Jew in the Bible you're familiar with, he would refer to that as a white. He doesn't use the city of Jerusalem. He uses the city of Atlanta. And when Jesus, baby Jesus, was carried, escaped into Egypt, in his version, or paraphrase, he escaped into Mexico. So he fled from Atlanta to Mexico. I'll read a few portions of, um, of that book just to give you a, an idea of what it says. Uh, this is a, an account um, when the wise men came to look for Jesus. Quoting, where is the one who is born to be governor of Georgia? We saw his star in the Orient and we came to honor him. This news put Governor Herod and all his cronies in a tizzy. So they called a meeting of the big time preachers and politicians and asked if they had any idea where the leader was to be born. In Gainesville, Georgia, they replied. And then later on, uh, after the wise men were leaving. After the wise men had checked out, the Lord's messenger made connection with Joseph in a dream and said, get moving and take your wife and baby and highball it to Mexico. Then it dawned on Herod that he had been duped by the learned men and he really blew his top. So the question is, when you use dynamic equivalents, where's the stopping point? How far do you go? Um, I lean very strongly towards uh, sticking with the, the formal equivalents as much as possible. Okay, I'm going to take some time to just look at a number of different translations, give you some information about those, and um, we'll start with the King James Version. The King James Version, also known as the KJV, was first published in 1611, used the receive text, and over on the side there, I have that little box, and this box is just simply a little bit of an indicator of whether they use the formal equivalents or the dynamic equivalents. So the needle there on the side means that the King James leans very strongly towards the, the formal equivalents. That's the word-for-word -word translation. As that needle goes over farther to the right, it's more towards the dynamic equivalents. I thought about just using a number for that, but I didn't want to use that because this is just kind of my perception. It's not a, a hard fact thing, so I didn't want to assign a number. It's just kind of a, an evaluation there. So what about the King James Version? You might hear somebody say, the King James is tried and true and has been around for centuries. All these new translations, I just don't trust them. Well, did it ever occur to you that the King James Version was new at one time as well? And when it was new, it was not very well accepted. It took the King James Version about 100 years in order for it to be accepted by the common people. The King James is not the first English translation. There were others that preceded it, but most of them were very awkward in their translation style, confusing and hard to read. So a person's opinion of the King James Version depends largely or a lot on his background and on his upbringing. I grew up reading and memorizing the King James Version and I have a high appreciation for it. Someone who grew up using a different version of the Bible may have a lower appreciation 
for the King James or somebody who grew up with no Bible at all. Some of the strengths of the um, King James Version, one of them is its beauty and accuracy, and it's just simply a familiar version. Someone has said it's the most grand and beautiful of all English versions, just uh, the, the, the majestic style in which it is written, a very uh, beautiful style. It is one of the most literal translations in use today. Not the only one that's used as a pretty literal, but one of the most. And it is considered to be a very accurate Bible, provided you understand its language. Some people might have trouble understanding some of the terms, so if you don't understand it, does the accuracy actually help you? It is also recognized as being easy to memorize because of the poetic style in which it is written. It's more uh, universal as well. Familiar passages are more recognizable. Quoting together is usually done in the King James Version. How many of you can quote the Lord's Prayer in a version other than the King James? Is there anyone? I'm just curious. Okay. Okay, a few. German, okay. Um, probably in Romanian as well. Um, so there may be a few, but if I'd say we're going to do that in unison, it would be a problem. So it's, it's very uh, more, more universal. And the King James also has some precision that the other ones lack. Uh, for example, one, one of the statements you often hear about the King James is, I get bogged down in all these these and thous. Well, who doesn't know what thee means or thou? And do you know that there's a reason why those words are used? In the King James Version, thee and thou, generally speaking, is singular, and ye and you is plural. And if you understand that, it gives deeper meaning to the scriptures. And if you get away from that, you lose something. For example, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus by night. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, ye must be born again. Verily, verily, I say unto you, one person that I'm speaking to, you, everybody, needs to be born again. You see there's some significance there, and you can find that in a lot of different places. What are the drawbacks of the King James Version? Well, it uses some words that have been discontinued. Do you know what these words mean? What and plead, immerse, chambering, blains, when? A lot of those words lose some of us pretty quickly. You read that, you probably just kind of skip over it, and well, whatever that is, and move on. So that's one of the uh, disadvantages. Words that have been discontinued, and something else that be, can be confusing is that it also uses words whose meanings have changed over the years. One of those would be a couple examples here, the word prevent. Now, we think of the word prevent meaning to, to keep from doing. You know, if I prevent you from doing something, I keep you from doing it. Well, 400 years ago, the word prevent also meant precede, to go before. You have the verse in 1 Thessalonians 4, we shall not prevent them which are asleep. It doesn't mean we're not going to stop them. It means we're not going to go ahead of them. The dead in Christ shall rise first. So that word changed meaning. Another example, the word wealth. Uh, we think of wealth referring to riches. In the text or the connotation in which the, the, the King James Version was written, wealth simply meant a person's well-being. In uh, James 2, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. It doesn't mean you're supposed to try to make each other rich necessarily, but you're supposed to look for each other's well-being, for their good. And of course, another example would be the word gay, which definitely changed meaning over the years. James uses that word as well. You have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing. Well, depending on who would hear that for the first time, their idea would be totally different than what uh, your idea would be. So that's just a, a little bit of an overview of the King James. Let's look at the new King James Version, known as the NKJV. This, by this version first was published in 1982. 
also using the received text, the same text as the King James uses. When the publishers of the New King James produced this Bible, their goal was to maintain the structure of the King James Version and the word-for-word -word translation, but to simply update the archaic words. The words that are no longer used, the words that have changed meanings, they're going to update those words to the words that we use today while still maintaining the word-for-word uh, the -word expression and the sentence pattern. And their goal was so that the New King James Version would be compatible for public reading along with the King James Version. You read either one of those versions and follow along in the other version, it's very easy to follow where the person is reading from. Now, if someone reads from some of the other versions, it's a, it can be a little more challenging to follow along. This is the only modern translation that uses the same Greek text as the King James Version. Some of the advantages are, are some of the aspects of this Bible. It updates the punctuation. It uses a poetic layout for Bible poetry. Instead of just writing it as, as regular prose, it puts it in a poetic format. It also capitalizes pronouns referring to God, which the um, King James Version did not do. A lot of research went into this. Uh, 130 translators were involved. It was a seven-year project costing millions of dollars to produce this. Now, one of the downsides, and there's a lot we could get into here, but Bible publication and translations has become a commercial thing. Um, some of it taken over by, by secular companies simply because of the money that's in it. The New King James Version is copyrighted. They invested a lot, they copyrighted it, so you don't have the freedom to publish it as you might wish to, um, which can be um, a downside, along with some of the other versions. Rodney Yoder makes this summary of the New King James. He says, the New King James does an exceptional job of keeping what is best from the King James while clarifying what has become obscure. He says, for clarity, accuracy, and beauty, I like the New King James Version the best. I, I told you I'm going to try to be objective here so I can quote other people even if I don't give my own opinions yet at this point. Let's move on to uh, some others. Um, I'm going to skip some of these here for the sake of time. English Standard Version, ESV, is another version that's uh, used um, a fair amount by, by our people today. The goal of this translation in 2001, so this is only about 20 years old, their goal was to have a Bible that is more accurate than the NIV, more readable than the NASB, and not based on the received text like the King James Version. You notice they use the, the Nestle Allen text, which is the older manuscript. So the ESV will have some of those passages missing that you find in the King James Version. So these goals were largely achieved with a text that is still clear, it's dignified, it's still fairly literal, it leans pretty heavily towards the, the literal translation, and it is not as gender neutral as some of the other uh, translations. So if you are satisfied or looking for a Bible that uses the Nestle-Allen text, the ESV uh, may be a good option for you. Probably about as good of an option as you will get. Move on to, uh, let's look at the um, New International Version. New International Version was published first in 1978, and um, there's been some, some updates since then. For many of us, this version has been the go-to version if we're looking for an alternative to the King James Version. Uh, back in the early 80s, it became very popular. In fact, within eight years after it was published, it became the best-selling English Bible. It took the King James Version a lot longer than that to become popular. And that status has continued. The NIV is still a top-selling version today. I bought a copy of the NIV back a few years after it came out. 
I've used it quite a bit, and I've benefited from it as well. But I'd like you to note that it was revised. You see three dates here, 1978, 2005, and 2011. Not all NIVs are the same. It depends if you have an older one or a newer one. So it was originally published in 1978. And then in 2005, the publishers came out with a new version called Today's NIV. And this version used a lot of gender-neutral language, avoiding words like um, man and he and him, just try to get rid of the gender. And this version received such an outburst of criticism from across the board that in 2011, it was, there was a third version came out which basically combined the first original and the second one, and today all that you will find is the 2011 version, which is simply a, basically a combination of the two earlier versions. It still maintains a lot of gender-neutral language, but not quite to the same degree. Now, this question of gender neutrality, um, like I said, we don't have time to dive into a lot of these things. That has raised a lot of opposition, a lot of um, criticism, and my first tendency myself was to be very resistant to it because I think of today's society and the gender confusion and the gender inclusion and all those things, and it seems to me this Bible is just a response to that, to welcome gender-confused people. Maybe I overreacted a bit. Um, and the gender, gender identity is a totally different subject, but I understand that many times, if we go back to the meaning of the original Greek words, the the gender-neutral terms may actually compare closer to that. That was somewhat of a hurdle for me to get over in, uh, in my mind. When the King James Version was written, probably the, the language of that day referred more to the masculine pronouns, and that's what was used. So you can, uh, I'll just give that there for the information, and you can take that where you think is appropriate. The NIV, you see the needle here, swings pretty far off to the right. The NIV leans very heavily towards the dynamic equivalence aspect. The editors of the NIV made this comment, or this statement. They said, our first concern is faithfulness to the intended meaning of the biblical writers. This has moved the translators to go beyond a formal rendering to the, to the uh, dynamic or informal. Because thought patterns differ from language to language, accurate communication of the meeting demands frequent modification in sentence structure. So again, some of this is necessary, but the question is how much. Their goal was to be faithful to the intended meaning, and that uh, can be subject to a lot of interpretation. There's a lot of verses there ahead that give some examples. Uh, we don't have time for all those. I'd like to move on to the Amplified Bible. Uh, I preached this sermon at Weavertown, and I did not have the Amplified Bible included in here, and that was one of the most uh, common questions I received afterwards. Well, what about the Amplified Bible? You didn't say anything about that. So I did a little bit of research from that. The Amplified Bible was first published in 1965 with some newer updates. And um, the, the Amplified Bible is a literal translation, very, very similar to the King James. It sticks very literal, but it then adds amplifications or explanations using parentheses, um, brackets, and so forth to indicate they add synonyms and definitions which explains and expands the meaning. 
So it's a, a combination of literal translation and added comments, all combined into one. They're clearly identified, so you know which is which. So some might find this helpful, some might find it confusing. I, I would consider that probably the Amplified Bible is most beneficial when used for study rather than for your, your primary reading. One of the um, advantages of this is that the version acknowledges that many times there is no one single word that can entirely convey a message of one singular Greek word. And if you know two languages, you understand how that is. Oftentimes, there, there's not exactly one word. And this, this Bible acknowledges that. At the same time, the Amplified Bible could lead you to believe that a word may mean one of several things, and you're left to choose whichever one strikes your fancy. I'll give you some examples here. Okay, there, I mentioned that uh, that needle there points, points towards the, the left. It's a very formal equivalent, but then it adds the explanations. John 1, verses 1 to 2. Notice the brackets and parentheses here, which would be the amplifications that are added. In the beginning, before all time, was the word Christ, and the word was with God, and the word was God himself. He was continually existing in the beginning, co-eternally, with God. So I wouldn't recommend you use that for public reading. You could lose people pretty quickly. But if you want to use it for study, it may be helpful. I'd like to look at another verse. First um, John 1, 5. In the King James Version, it says, And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The ESV says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see those two different words, comprehended and overcome. The first implies understanding. The light shined into darkness, but the darkness just, just couldn't understand it. They couldn't comprehend it. The second implies you know, a victory aspect, like the, the darkness was not able to, to overwhelm it or to have victory over it or to diminish it. Now, which one of these is correct? I understand that the Greek word that's used here can mean both of those, depending on the circumstance. You know how English words can mean different things. I understand that the Greek word can mean both of those things. So the one translation used to one, the one translation used to the other. The Amplified Bible takes that into account. Notice how they write it. The light shines on in the darkness, and the darkness did not understand it, or overpower it, or appropriate, or absorb it, and is unreceptive to it. So I guess it um, leaves it for you to decide. New Living Translation. Uh, years ago, the Living Bible was popular. The Living Bible is a paraphrase, a man not necessarily a group of scholars, a man just simply took the Bible, rewrote it in his own words to make it readable. It's a paraphrase. My opinion, when you're reading a paraphrase, you're not reading the Bible. You may find it helpful, but it's not reading the Bible. It's kind of like reading a commentary. It's not reading a Bible. It's one person's words of the Bible. So, there was some stigma attached to this because it was a paraphrase. So the publisher decided that he's going to turn this paraphrase into a translation so that he can call it a translation so it will be better accepted. So that's how we have the NLT, the New Living Translation. He did use a group of scholars, made an effort to make it more, um, more official, but they readily acknowledge that they translate entire thoughts into natural everyday English. So there again, it is leaning very far to the right, very, very much liberty in the translations. And I'll just use one more example here as um, to see how far we can go when we go towards this dynamic translation, and that is the message. Uh, some of you are probably familiar with that. Some of you may have a copy of it. 
This was published in 2002. And in its own words, it describing itself, it says it changes the language of the Bible that God uses into the language of today that we use to gossip and tell stories, do business, sing songs, and talk to each other. The message uses an extremely casual tone. I'm going to read a verse from the message. See if you can identify the verse. Don't be flip with the sacred. Banter and silliness give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. In trying to be relevant, you're only being cute and inviting sacrilege. Any idea what I was quoting? Actually, it comes from the words of Jesus. Matthew 7, 6. Cast not your pearls before swine. <laughs> That's how they translate that. And they say in this, um, don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. It, it almost seems like that's exactly what they're doing in telling you not to do it. I'll read it again. Cast not your pearls before swine. Don't be flipped with the sacred. Banter and silliness give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. And trying to be, re to be relevant, you're only being cute and inviting sacrilege. The message... I want you to note, the message was not intended to be used by serious Bible readers. The man who was behind this, he said that this is for people who have never read the Bible before. And the publishers of the message recommend that serious readers get another Bible. So for you to read the message, would be a little bit like a college student reading Dick and Jane stories. It's below your level of uh, background and where you are. Uh, there's a purpose for Dick and Jane stories. Uh, there may be a place for the message in some cases, but um, probably not too much among our circles. Now, I mentioned that I'm going to try to be as objective as possible up to this point. I'm going to transition now a little bit more to a personal perspective. And I want to be very clear that what I'm going to say now is opinion. Okay, it's my opinion. Your opinion may be different than mine. And I accept that. I expect that. I expect not all opinions are going to be the same. But uh, probably you want to know where I come out in some of these. And so I will tell you. Uh, number one, my personal opinion. I highly recommend sticking with the King James Version for public reading. There may be some room for the New King James Version as well. It, uh, if it, it um, flows very well. I have no problem referring to other versions. Frequently when I preach, I might mention this verse states it this way in this version or in that version. I think there's use for that. It's good. But for primary public reading, um, I think the King James Version is, is good to use. It can be very distracting depending on what other versions are read, and it can open the door to getting into a lot of, lot of different versions. Uh, when I preached this sermon at Weavertown, that statement got a lot of favorable comments from the people. Uh, many people thanked me for, for saying that, and they just felt strongly that they, they prefer that as well. Next point of my personal opinion, let's not get radical. In some of my reading, I heard some pretty far out statements. Some of those were by King James only people and their reasons for using only the King James version, some of them were just downright radical. I mean, they, they, they were building a case. Let, let's not get radical, let's not go overboard. Um, I encourage using other versions in your personal reading and study. I think it can be really helpful. If I were looking to purchase a Bible to use for myself today or for one of my children, uh, probably the first consideration I would go with would be the New King James Version. Follows the format, just updates some of the language. And probably my next choice would be the um, ESV, English Standard Version, which uh, I think is uh, one of the more valuable or one of the more um, reliable 
It still leans pretty heavily towards the formal equivalents, but uh, a bit more readable. Continuing on here with my perspectives, um, sometimes people say, well, I can't understand the King James Version because of all the these and the thous and so forth. And yet, it seems it doesn't matter what terms come out in technology issues, new computer terms and so forth, that'll soon lose me. People can just pick that up right away. And yet they don't know what the and thou means. Uh, I think there's maybe some making excuses there. Where there's a desire, there's a way. Some of our schools are taking steps away from the King James Version because it's too hard to understand. And yet those same schools will spend week after week studying Shakespearean literature that uses language that is much more obscure than anything you find in the King James Version. Um, so something doesn't quite connect with me there. I'll sum this up. By nature, we are lazy people. We like the easy way out. We like the path of least resistance. And when it comes to Bible reading, sometimes we just want to let other people do the work for us. Uh, we'll let them do all the thinking so we don't have to. And too often we're satisfied to read a very loosely translated version without digging in and discovering for ourselves what it might mean. Some concluding thoughts. Different versions can be helpful. I remember reading James chapter 3, verse 1. In King James Version, it says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. I skimmed over that verse. Well, I'm not a master of anything. That doesn't really apply to me. I read it in the NIV one time, and I remember it really jumping out at me. I was a school teacher at the time. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow brethren, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That caught my attention. I do a lot of teaching today. We're going to be accountable for what we teach. Uh, we're going to be accountable for what versions we use as well. Teaching is, not, is a serious matter. It's not to be taken lightly. Be careful. When we handle God's word, we're handling something that is precious to God. Another caution, beware of cherry picking. What do I mean by cherry picking? It's very easy today to go into an online website. I can type in one reference, and in an instant, I have that verse written in a dozen different translations. And I have this certain thought that I really want to bring out, so I read over these translations. Ah, yeah, there it is. That's what I'm going to use for this verse, because it brings out the thought that I want. Be careful about that. It's better to stick with one or two translations. Now, you can use the other ones, but um, I, I guess my caution is here, do not read the Bible with your mind made up, determined somewhere, somehow, to find something that agrees with your perspective. Let the Bible be the authority. Couple verses, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the law of the thoughts and intents of the heart. For the word of God is quick. What does that mean? Speedy? No. Alive. The word of God is living. The word of God will speak today. Psalm 12, 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I believe that God is preserving his word. In spite of the human element involved, God's word will endure. In Psalm 1989, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So, we have a lot at our disposal. We have the benefits of countless hours and years of work of hundreds of people. We, have, we are blessed. So many people in this world don't even have a complete Bible, even one copy in their own language. We have so much available. To whom much is given, much shall be required. 
we should be the most scripturally literate, wisest, and best equipped army this world has ever seen if it's based on what we have available. So regardless of what version you choose to use, my desire is that you move beyond admiring the version and defending the version to applying it to your life and allowing it to change you. Thank you for your attention, and I do welcome your comments. Like I said, um, I know opinions vary, and I don't mind hearing what you have to say. Uh, I won't take that as a threat. I can, uh, I can benefit from that. I've actually incorporated some things in this message, that some feedback from some people after I preached this at Weavertown, and that's beneficial. So hopefully uh, you found this uh, helpful to you. Let's kneel for prayer.